Hi, you're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting from two shipping containers repurposed into a recording studio with a garden on top in Bushwick, Brooklyn, next to Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street. Our show today is produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Nat Wiener. And today's show is a big one. And we're only going to really touch on the subject because we only have 30 minutes, but we're going to start somewhere. (laughs) Uh, Today, we're going to talk about great ladies of horticulture. And as some of you may know, um, Alice and I are garden designers and contractors via our garden design and contracting firm Groundworks. We build, we design and build gardens all over the city and surrounding area. And we occupy, as a firm, a unique niche in a very male-dominated industry. Now, there are quite a few women garden designers in the field. There are not that many that design and build gardens, however. And Alice, I noticed every time we went to a professional seminar, a trade show, or, of course, on the job site, um, we were always a minority. It's rather burly. It is a burly profession. Um, and it got me kind of curious about what women's role was historically speaking with regard to the garden and the landscape. Now, I come from a farming background. My grandparents were farmers. My parents were. And I think of the garden as sort of a, a part of the, an extension of the household. And I expected it to be traditionally part of the ladies' domain. But as I researched this topic, I learned that it's, it hasn't always been so. And actually, women's role in the making of managing of gardens has evolved a lot over the centuries. And as I was researching, I found um, a great writer by the name of Eleanor Perenni. She was a, a writer and an editor. And um, she wrote this great book um, published in the 1980s called Green Thoughts. And that book is considered as a sort of classic of garden literature. Her style is really easy to read. It's, it's very spare, but it's, it's emotional, too. It's really, really good. And she considered the question of what has been women's place in the garden? Good question. Yes. <laughs> Every place is a place for women in the garden. So her, she wrote an essay on it, on that subject. And this essay was kind of like my guide and inspiration. And I'd like to share some of her ideas with you. Now, a little bit of background about Eleanor. Um, she was... A woman of privilege. She was born in 1918, and she was a diplomat's daughter. She she went to Hungary with her father, and she married a Hungarian baron. And then a hungry baron, a hungry baron. <laughs> Isn't that the next show? <laughs> and then after World War II, um, she got separated from her husband and ultimately divorced him and moved to New York. And in the 1950s, she was an editor for Harper's Bazaar. So what I find interesting about her is that she was a working woman in the 1950s when women were worshipped as like mothers and homemakers. That's bizarre. Bizarre. So she she wanted to know why weren't there any books written about women's gardening history? There haven't really been any, at, at least as of this date that I know of and that she knew of. So she starts her essay by stating emphatically that women invented horticulture. That's a strong statement. Um, The women went out into the fields and the forests and they domesticated the plants while, as she describes it, men were still chasing wild beasts. (laughs) It's a good visual. 
Now, when men decided that, wait a minute, you know, horticulture is probably a more efficient way to feed the family and they, they turned their eye to it, she argues that women got banished to the trivial and, you know, the less essential flowery garden. Right, the decorative exactly. aspect. Except, of course, when it came to doing their share of the work. So, according to her, men decide what's planted and how, but women were expected to weed and harvest and carry loads of brushwood. And in most cultures, she claims there was a definite division of labor between the sexes, and it wasn't based on relative physical strength. Right. It was based more on who wants to do what job. <laughs> right. And who's in charge. And then most, in most cultures, it was the men. Now, my grandmother, speaking from a personal level, were a testament to that. They were expected to work in the fields all day, equivalent to the men, but still be expected to manage all the child-rearing and domestic tasks as well. Right. That's double the workload. Yeah. And they... they and they did it. They handled it. Right. Now, Perini describes women as being imprisoned in the flower garden, and that's an interesting um, image. She describes them as being simultaneously worshipped and feared as their complicity with nature put men ill at ease. So an example that she cites is women's ability to wither crops if they were menstruating. Now, interestingly, and Alice knows this story, my, my mother has passed that superstition down to me. To this day, no one can be menstruating when we can our bushels of tomatoes at the end of the summer. And you better believe I'm not going to mess with that so and what take is, any chances. What is the, what happens if you do? The tomatoes will turn bad. Rotten? Yeah, they will, <laughs> the canning will be, will go bad. And, right. and this and, is thousands of centuries of superstition. Yeah, and she just, you know, there's a few other superstitions I won't go into, but um, <laughs> let's just right. say. That's another a, show. There's a lot of limitations on what you can and can't do but it's before canning. It is, it is. And she's very adamant about it, actually. You do not mess with mama. <laughs> So um, not if you want dinner. <laughs> no. And you want those tomatoes, those gorgeous red tomatoes in December. You yeah. Know? So you yeah. have to help. And we usually can about 14 bushels. So if those got ruined for even if it was a random act that had nothing to do with menstruation, I would surely be blamed or my sister. <laughs> um, so women were put into this, you know, they had powers. Men were a little bit afraid of their, you know, their connection to nature. Mm hmm. Um, and then Perini goes into more of garden history, and the theme continues of women being in prison, Ottoman seraglios, Roman atriums. She described them as all flower prisons for usually illiterate women. So the women were put in there with their, you know, flowers. They were as beautiful as the flowers. They were decoration, mm -hmm. really. And then a little bit down Reflection. the... Reflection. Exactly, exactly. Just to be appreciated, mm -hmm. you know. Um. Now, the medieval garden, um, according to her, also represented women in an enclosure. And it was, you know, according to the art of the time, a more pleasurable um, period for women in the garden. But what's interesting is that during that period, the 200 or so years when the Crusades were dragging on, the lady of the house wasn't just, you know, playing in the flowers. She actually, actually had to take care of the estate in her husband's absence. I mean, right. many lords were gone for for decades fighting mm -hmm. so she had to take care of all the plants and the animal husbandry and and feed all the people that were within the castle walls mm -hmm. so that was an interesting period for women and and gardening and and agriculture and yet they weren't allowed to own the land no they were not they could take care of it but they couldn't actually own it right um and then she goes into the period that everyone is kind of obsessed with, that great period of garden design, you know, the golden age between like 1500 and 1800. During this time, there are a lot of theories about what makes a garden, what makes a landscape. 
and there were many, many books published, but none of them really got too deeply into women's role. There were a couple, and one of them that she describes is, I'll read you the title, Lawson's The Country Housewife of 1618 and Charles Evelyn's Ladies' Recreation of 1707. Now, both those titles say it all, don't they? Yeah. I mean, it, it really reinforces the notion that women's role is in the care and appreciation of flowers and herbs, and she's not supposed to be involved in the grand scheme of things. Right. In right. the planning. Um, now just, that, the, just the actual work of it. Right. And right. she can, you know, clip flowers, and she can, you know, appreciate them. And Right. Now, Hence botanical painting. Yes. And yeah. During that period, women started poetry getting Poetry and painting. women's pursuit of the arts. Yeah. But the women, many of them didn't go to school, of course, and they mm-hmm. were, you know, illiterate of other things. Mm-hmm. There were just, a, there was a precious few areas where they were allowed to get educated. Now, there were some exceptions uh, of women that, that did make some major contributions to horticulture. And they were, of course, powerful women. Um, and one of them is the Dowager Princess of Wales. She founded the Great Botanic Garden at Kew in 1761. That's one of the most famous examples of a, a woman who influenced horticulture at that time. I don't think many people know that a woman right. actually started that. You always think that. of it as the King's Emperor, Empire. Yeah, and Sir Joseph but, Banks is credited right. a lot with that. And so Perini says that, you know, yes, there were women of rank that had power, but the women uh, of humbler positions didn't do so well. But she cites another example that I thought was really interesting that I wanted to share. And her name was Jane Colden. She was the daughter of the lieutenant governor of New York. And she lived near Newburgh on the Hudson, not too far from New York City. And she actually went into the wild to document the local flora. And then um, by 1758, she had completed a manuscript that she had written and illustrated by herself in which she describes 400 local plants and their uses. Oh, wow. And that was pretty amazing considering the time period. Do you know where that portfolio is or where? Yes. Well, it was never published, of course, Uh um, but it ended up in the collection of Sir Joseph Banks. Oh, wow. And he was a, a big collector of that kind of literature. And obviously, he, he was impressed enough with it to buy it. And today, actually, she would probably be surprised to know that it resides in the British Museum. As it should. Yeah. Good. Because I bet a lot of that flora might be extinct now. Uh, sure. You know? Right. So now Alice is going to discuss in the next segment after the break, two women who are probably the most well-known of the great ladies of horticulture. Gertrude Jekyll and Beatrix Jones Ferrand. I think she goes mostly by Beatrix Ferrand, right, Alice? Mm -hmm. Now, what I want to note is that these two ladies really owe a debt of gratitude to these quote-unquote sort of nameless housewives. They're the ones that save the cottage garden plants that we admire so much today and which these two ladies use to such great effect in the gardens that that they made. Mm Mm-hmm. Because during that period, the gardener, um, Capability Brown, he was ripping out all the English flower gardens, all the Elizabethan and the Renaissance-inspired gardens. And he was also ripping out, at the same time, some of England's great garden plants in Mm -hmm. the process. Mm -hmm. And then he was replacing them with these gigantic, you know, contrived landscape parks. Not very intimate, not very personal. So they, out with the old and in with the yeah, new. Yeah, but they didn't consider plant conservation at that time. It's only because of these regular people, these like, you know, blue collar people of the time, these old wives, they preserve the future. They save the seeds, 
They they saved cuttings. They actually well, they saw the necessity of it. Yeah, and they were uneducated. Mm-hmm. And um, but they, it was more about survival. Exactly. They wanted to save the medicinal plants that they used. You mm-hmm. know, so the the native plants and the naturalistic gardens that we appreciate today, like the like the High Line and mm-hmm. other places like Piet Udolf, they're kind of made possible by these women's work. Yeah, they're never going to get credit for it. We don't exactly know who they are, but um, they made a kind of important contribution to our plants and our and to horticultural history so today now in the 21st century of course as women we have um many more choices but um as i said at the beginning of the show i think there's still too few of us in this profession i think of it as a very noble profession alice and i always joke about calling it the second oldest profession yeah um (laughs) We won't talk about the first. No, but. <laughs> that's on the show about pollination. Um, but it is, we want more women to to contribute to it. And I hope that that um, we can inspire um, some of you to help change that. So I want to give, um, I want to give a little touch um, and sort of show uh, Eleanor Perenni, who I was referencing a lot. Um, <clears throat> I want to hear, I want you to hear her voice directly. And this is a quote. Um, from her she says it takes a while to grasp that not all failures are self-imposed the result of ignorance carelessness or an inexperience it takes a while to grasp that a garden isn't a testing ground for character and to stop asking what did i do wrong the answer might be nothing yeah so we're gonna um take a little break um you're listening to we dig plants And we're going to listen to um, the Beastie Boys, Hey Ladies. And when Alice comes back, we'll listen to more ladies. Welcome back to We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network. Today we're talking about the ladies, the ladies in the house and the ladies in the garden. So um, the story, you you just heard a little bit from Carmen about um, a writer. And to continue the story, um, it's really a story that developed out of necessity. Women, as we were talking about earlier, could not be landowners per se. They were required instead to cultivate and tend these kitchen gardens. They had an intimate knowledge of how these plants grew, uh, but versus the big picture effect of gathering food and moving earth, which is traditionally men's work, women were really banished to kind of inside the garden walls. Uh, There are two pioneering women, which bridged both the knowledge of plants and earth moving, Um, And these women have a huge effect on the discipline of landscape architecture. Um, And Martha Stewart has today made a fortune because of the work of these two early ladies. So the first of which um, is Gertrude Jekyll. 
She was born in London in 1843, and she died in the 1930s. She was born to a prosperous family. She was educated in painting and music, and she traveled extensively. Um, She studied architecture and history in Greece. Um, So she was a a privileged lady. Um, In the 1890s, however, due to poor eyesight, she turned from, um, from painting to landscape gardening. And Gertrude's style is one of simplicity. It is described as ordered disorder. Um, and I think what, what our listeners would most recognize it as is the style of the cottage garden. Yeah, It's a theme of romance where actually middle-class gardens can emit a sort of careless rapture um, concerning the landscape. It's kind of a haphazard effect, but it is very, very, very thought about and designed in and it- its haphazard right effect. and you don't need a hundred acres you exactly know, or a wood it, it, i guess she kind of make made it more accessible design accessible to exactly you know. she really intertwined architecture and the house um in what is um described as the arts and crafts style of garden making um so remember this was also the brink of world war one and many agricultural workers were impoverished um, because of the farming depression at the end of the 19th century. So here was a way of of being able to create your own gardens in your own space and and cultivate food for yourself and beauty um, among your own kind of walls. So she designed gardens alongside an architect, a very famous British architect called Sir Edward Lutens. Um, he was a contemporary of Frank Lloyd Wright and... Um, they really they really worked together to refine this arts and craft movement, which owned its um, origin to a number of different artists and writers and industrialists and philosophers. And they they were actually reacting to the brutality of English of England and, and Britain's 19th century industrial revolution. So their aims were to beautify all the practical things, such as houses and furnishings, and emphasize natural materials and individual craftsmanship. Yeah, and uh, that's recurrent. I guess we could call this this period now, the 21st century, uh, this eco-movement, a neo-arts and crafts movement, kind yeah. of, right? Dare, dare you bring that? To the, <laughs> dare you say that? <laughs> you mean it hasn't been invented? <laughs> some philosopher, some... <laughs> Some art teacher hasn't coined that phrase already. <laughs> Neo arts and crafts. <laughs> well, I love the arts and crafts movement a yeah. lot, so it, it um, it's close to my heart. And the mo- it really found its inspiration um, from uh, William Morris, you know, the the beautiful designer. Um, so again, this is this is a, a a mixing of architecture and exterior. Jekyll was adding um, softness to the architecture through color. Um, she really focused her designs on harmonies of color so reds and yellows and oranges with contrasting blues and yellows for accent um she is described as the edwardian school of good taste so that's a far cry from the victorian bedding exactly extravaganzas a, right, right? She this really, is a naturalistic native kind of use of space um and her most 
famous garden is Munstead Wood, which is a house and cottage that was designed in partnership with Lutons. It's a perfect example of the kind of in and out relationship of house and garden, and it showcases the signature English border style garden, which is set along, um, you know, a high wall of stone. And the garden is comprised of hot colors like red and orange in the center, which taper off to cooler colors, blues and silvers, with usually sharp foliage as the accent on the end pieces. Um, The house is a small scale, uh, free Tudor style house, um, which later would become Luton's signature style of grandeur as his career uh, moved on. So she created over 400 gardens and wrote over 1000 articles for Country Life and Garden Magazine. A majority of her gardens have sadly, um, fallen to neglect due to wars and transfer of property. Um, However, several remain and have been restored and are available for tour um, via the National Trust of England's National Garden Scheme category. So you can go online and and look up the National Trust and see what some of these gardens look like. Um, She never visited the States, but she did design several gardens for American clients, one of which is available um, for viewing in Connecticut, um, in Woodbury, Connecticut. It's called the Glebe House. Mm-hmm. And that is a really magnificent example of of her style of cottage gardens. If you want to know how to make a proper border, you go to Jekyll. Yeah. Proper and herbaceous. you bring your notebooks, just mm-hmm. like she did, and you sketch it, and you draw it, and you find out the name of those plants. There's no randomness at all. No. Every plant is placed it precisely. It looks random. Yes. That's the beauty of it. But it's not it. at all random. So another quite kind of interesting thing about um, Gertrude Jekyll is that the Jekyll Islands off of the United States-Georgia coast are named after this Jekyll family as her great-great-grandfather was a customs handler in Boston and was very admired by the King of England. Um so named the islands after him. And additionally, her brother Walter was friends with Robert Louis Stevenson, and his story Jekyll and Hyde borrows the family name for oh, I didn't the know title. That. That's yeah. really interesting. Found that kind we of pronounce it Jekyll. <laughs> it's it's actually Jekyll. Yeah. Jekyll. Jekyll. Right. Um, and she also propagated several plants which are still in circulation today, and her name bears articulation to many of the great plants we use in our gardens today. Like lavender munstead, right? Exactly. And the Jekyll Rose, which is one of my favorites from David Austin. Didn't she introduce the fairy rose back into cultivation yes. too? Yep. Right? Yep. So these are all um plants that are in circulation and Carmen and I use them in just about every garden that we plant. Thank you, Gertrude. (laughs) So another great lady is a woman named Beatrix Ferrand, um, who was born a little bit later. She was born in 1872, and she died basically in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, in 1959. Now, her aunt is Edith Wharton on her father's side. Her mother is from a prominent Philadelphia family, Uh, Their parents were divorced when Beatrix was 12, and she and her mother remained um, at their townhouse, their brownstone, on East 11th Street in the village. Hmm. Um, And her father moved to Paris and was kind of estranged from the family. Her dad was naughty. But um, her mother was a literary agent and so had like a literary salon. So Beatrix was exposed to all the great um, kind of thinkers of of this era and she traveled extensively with her mother and her aunt um 
Her uncle was a distinguished lawyer and was trustee of the Met, the New York Public Library, and the Bronx Zoo. So she was really exposed to this great kind of social network of uh, New York New York people. Um, and well, when Edith Wharton's your aunt, exactly. she knows a little bit about gardening, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, no shortage of opinions in that family. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and here's one, actually, her uncle um, in 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 talking about Beatrix describes her as let her be a gardener or for that matter, anything she wants to be what she wishes to do. Well, will be well done. So, um, she really had a lot of support and, uh, and encouragement to do what she wanted. And she grew up in a single household. So she was taught to do for herself. She was taught to manage her own money. She was taught to read books, and she was groomed, really, for an independent life of self-sufficiency. Which is pretty rare for that time period. That time I mean, period. if you look at photos of her as a debutante mm-hmm. in, you know, 1890s, and then yeah. you see photos of her in the 1930s, it's like, it's not... It, it's it, a different person. It's an entirely different person. It doesn't seem like 40 years have passed, but like centuries. That's the know? magnificent um, part about this story, is that, um, and this is kind of in my summation... Uh, it, it goes very quickly. Women's women's movement and women's rights go very, very quickly. So industrial America had created kind of a new class where the estate had finally uh, come into fashion here in the United States and as it was popular in Europe. And Beatrix had been exposed to that estate life uh, through earlier years of travel. So the decades before the Depression, as Carmen was talking about, were really a golden era of landscape architecture, stonework and pools and fountains and statuary. And this was all modeled after French, Spanish, and English design. Cottage gardens became fashionable in the States, those which um, uh, Gertrude Gico was doing, so rose and perennial gardens. And these estate gardens crept up along the shores from Maine to Southampton, where the wealthy classes lived and partied. <laughs> yeah, America still wanted to emulate Europe a lot in those days. Very much so, right. That was their model. Um, so Beatrix did not go to college, which is very interesting. However, she did assist with the founding of the American Society of Landscape Architects in 1899. She was the only woman on that council, um, which was really a professional organization that was developed from the emerging university systems of landscape architecture programs. Well, um, didn't Olmsted kind of just invent landscape architecture just a few decades before? Exactly. Barely. Exactly. Well, not really. I mean, it was 1860 that Prospect Park in Brooklyn was designed. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know. It's very new. Very, very new. So rather than attend college, she actually studied horticulture in Boston with Charles Sprague Sargent at the Arnold Arboretum. She studied horticulture as an artist would have apprenticed to a master painter. So again, it's that European ideal of study and um, apprenticeship. Um, she traveled back to Europe and she studied gardens. Um, she would bring her notebooks and write down her observations and her impressions and the, all the botanical knowledge that she gained from talking to the head gardeners. So she relied on these notebooks exclusively and she never traveled without them. She referred to herself as a landscape gardener rather than a landscape architect. Interesting. Because she really valued the plant's place in the garden. It wasn't just about moving earth around and being burly and creating terraces. It was about how those plants relate to those terraces and how they really can make a landscape 
dramatic. And she, and actually, if you look at her her drawings, they're beautiful. They're they're, they're works of art in and of themselves. I mean, other than her the draftsmanship, fact, mm-hmm, like was phenomenal, was phenomenal. Better than probably any male trained academic without CAD. Without CAD, <laughs> yeah, her drawings are really really gorgeous. So she was the product really of um, five generations of garden lovers. Her grandmother owned the first espalier fruit gardens in Newport. And she watched, um, as as a child, um, the layout of her family gardens at the summer house in Bar Harbor, Maine. So her family connections offered her much work as her social circle bought and designed houses, J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller, etc. Um, Beatrix was employed to design the gardens. Her first office was in the home that she grew up with on um, at East 11th Street, and she had no dependents, no husband, no children at this time, so she was really able to grow her business quickly via referrals. Her work was considered fine. Her gardens and clients ranged from New York to California to England, and after the estate work started to dwindle due to the Depression and the stock market crash, she designed gardens for campus colleges, Yale and Harvard, University of Chicago, Oberlin, Vassar, Hamilton College, California Institute of Technology at Pasadena. She also did the White House Garden under um, Woodrow Wilson and the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden, to name a few. She actually butted heads often with these architects um, that were employed to build the houses um, and these buildings because she was a woman kind of directing these landscape projects and usually employed separately by the client. I can only imagine if we think we have challenges. I can just imagine her. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So she did end up getting married. She married the chair of the history department at Yale. They moved to the Huntington Library in San Marino, where he was the director um, in California. And the bulk of her career um, was while she technically lived in California, but she had three offices. So here's a woman that has three landscape garden architecture offices, one in Maine, one in New Haven, and one in um, Bar- in uh, San Marino, California. Her most famous garden is Dumberton Oaks, where actually my brother is a gardener. Um, and you should really, if you get a chance to go take a drive down to Washington, D.C., take a look at Dumberton Oaks. Um, the, the garden beds really follow the, gar- the Gertrude Jekyll theory and philosophy. Um, they're naturalistic, they're surprising, and they're for all seasons of viewing, spring, summer, and fall. So to sum up this subject, which is really too large for 30 minutes, women have come a long way to coin the 1970s vernacular. As ladies, we are first seen in the Garden of Eden, We are tempting man, and then we're banished to the walls of the medieval garden where man, as gardener, is set forth by the church doctrine uh, via the belief of creation, fall, and redemption. So it it was man that was in the Bible supposed to be the gardener. However, you know, the lady's sitting there, she's looking, and she's thinking, and she's doing. And she wants some fruit. And she wants some fruit. Who because doesn't? he didn't pick it for <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> so th- she learned to nurture and she learned to really nurture and respect her environment um she had time on her hands and mouths to feed so she learned medicinal practices kitchen farming and the balance between action and contemplation so today women are not sitting in a walled garden they are able to be huge marketing executives capitalizing on the art of flowers and growing them 
the showcasing of them, and designing gardens for home and commercial initiatives. So from 1843, at the birth of Gertrude Jekyll, to 1959, the death of Beatrix Varan, just a hundred-year span, women's rights and industrial growth have, like, changed everything. So it's now possible for contemporary ladies to make a big show in the garden. They're not not just fussing with flowers. Martha Schwartz uh, is able to accomplish wild and amazing contemporary art pieces, Edwina von Gaal can produce sublime and ethereal native gardens, and now her, now she's working with biodiversity issues and wearing wearing crazy, crazy red heels. That's what she was wearing the day I met her. Um, in a garden, is able to call herself the Barefoot Contessa, can you imagine, and produce an enviable kitchen garden and a cooking show. So much for the dirty Gertrude. Gertrude Jekyll boot. Right? I think I err on the side of the dirty boot versus the I like red the heel. Dirty. I don't know. I like both. I like the option that we have both. Mm-hmm. And Martha Stewart can create a domestic dynasty from a flower business and a TV show. So the list, of course, goes on and on. The stories of these women refine the haunting of Eden that plagues us, but it also charts the quest for paradise that lives within us all. The creation of a great garden with an ode to nature. An acceptance, a coexistence, and a path towards good. So please visit our Facebook page where we will post some info on these great books concerning today's ladies. Visit our website, groundworksgardens.com, to learn more about us. And thank you to Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn at 261 Moore Street, Jack Inslee for producing, and Nat Wiener for engineering. See you in the garden. Happy gardening. <laughs>